like always, um, we need to take a look first at the context that the parable is shared in. You say, well, what's the context? The context is the setting. Um, it's what was previously said, uh, where the event's happening, what's going on, etc. cetera. Uh, and it's important to look at that because sometimes we can look at just a teaching or a parable by itself and extrapolate or get a completely different um, interpretation of it than what was intended. So, um, really, this whole dialogue starts in Matthew chapter 24, uh, in starting in verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to his building. Excuse me. So, as they're walking away from the temple, his disciples come and say, oh, Jesus, look at all these amazing buildings. Aren't they super cool? Um, that's a paraphrase. Next verse, it says, you see all these things, yeah. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. He dropped the uh, dropped the hammer on him, so to speak. He's like, you see all these magnificent buildings that you're admiring. Like, we have magnificent buildings to admire. When I go to Boston, there's some really nice cathedrals and uh, some old historic places that I just I love to look at. And they were admiring. All, there's not going to be a stone on top of one another in the days to come. Verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and said, tell, tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? So the disciples recognized that Jesus was talking about future events. And now they're curious, hey, when are all these things going to happen? And all the rest of chapter 24... Uh, Jesus goes through and talks about signs, events, sequence, timing, all of these kinds of things. He says, when you see this, this is going to happen. When you see that, this is going to happen. So on. Um, and then he goes into chapter 25. Chapter 25 is a continuation of that conversation. Talking about in time. And he goes into three parables. The first parable he shares is the one of the uh, ten virgins, uh, or ten young women, in verses 1 through 13. And the meaning of the parable is readiness. It's being prepared. That Christ will return at any moment at the end times. Like, it, his return is going to be unknown. You're going to be going about your business, and all of a sudden, there he is. And so it's the parable, like, hey, you can be ready. And, uh, you know, we prepare ourselves for so many things in life, right? We prepare for a career, we get an education, we get a skill, we get some experience, we prepare for our careers, we prepare for our time, right? We save money, we look at a place that we can live that's going to be a certain amount of money, we make sure we have enough to make it to our estimated end. Uh, people even prepare for the apocalypse, right? They might store lots of food or have lots of guns or have a plan to bug out when all chaos breaks loose, right? There's, we prepare for a lot of things. Um, and this parable basically says, are you prepared for Christ? And I would argue that of all the things you can prepare for, that's the most important. Because that has eternal consequences. The second parable that he goes into is the bags of gold. God's thoughts and that's what terrible is, and I can talk about that terrible today, how God feels about that. And then we jump into the third parable which we're looking at today, the sheep and the goats in verses 31 through 46. And I 
say all this because it's important to understand that these are uh, latter day or end times or future parables and teachings of what is going to come. Uh, and they're stories to illustrate a truth or a teaching so that we can, we can understand. And as I was studying, I thought to myself, well, why is this important? If this is future, if this is far out, um, why is this so important for us to understand and know what's going to happen in the future? Well, it's for this. By knowing what the end looks like, it informs us on how to live today. And I'll give you an example of that. Um, in college, uh, previously, and when I used to take college courses, uh, I always looked at the course description that the professor gave, and I always looked at it at the beginning of the semester. And why is it important to look at it at the beginning of the semester? It's important because in the course description, the professor lists and includes what they're going to use to assess your grade. What is it that's important to that professor? And there's lots of, uh, of work when it comes to a college course. There's writing assignments, there's homework, there's special projects, there's a midterm exam, there's a final exam, uh, there's sometimes there's an oral exam, uh, there's labs on something. And so you have all of this activity in a college course. What of it is the professor going to use to assess your grade? And that's important because uh, it informs me on what's important to that professor and where my focus is. Right? So if I'm really tuned in on that writing assignment, I'm spending a lot of time on that writing assignment, and the professor's like, yeah, that's nice, and I didn't concern it as part of your grade. Even though it's a good exercise, and I'm going to learn from it, it doesn't matter to the professor. I took a course that the entire semester, uh, even though we had homework, writing assignments, projects, these kinds of things, the professor uh, graded my entire grade on the final exam, and the final exam was one question. It was brutal. I said to Pastor Sean, I'm like, because I was, I was, it was recent, I was thinking like, what do I do with this? How do you prepare? How do you, and you literally a number out of a hat. The professor had seven questions, and you drew a number out of a hat, whatever number was, that was the question. Talk about sweating and being trying to be prepared. But now, I have other professors who have been like, you know, 20% of your homework, 10% of your midterm, 30% is this, final this, and you're like, oh, like, I can spread my focus around, and I'm not as, um, it actually helps to uh, mess up in one area, the other area covers for Anyway, all of that to say is for us knowing At the end, this is how I'm going to assess you. Really important for us to know that. Because if we're like, hey, you know what's important to me? God, I'm going to live this way, and I think you're going to like that. At the end time, God's going to be like, you know what? Uh, that wasn't part of my assessment. I gave you the notice ahead of time. You had the course description. And you didn't want to do it. Not on God. Very important to look these parables and say, okay, end times, what is important to God? So that it informs me how I can live and how I can focus today. So let's look at today's parable. Matthew chapter 25, where in verse 31 says this, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. Important to know this parable is addressing with the very end of the end. Okay, this isn't uh, talk of when as Jesus is coming back. It's not talking about um, in the midst of tribulation or turmoil or wars. Or this is like he's come back. Everyone's in heaven, so to speak. Everyone's gathered. What has happened on earth has happened on earth. Uh, everybody's collected at the end. And he's sitting on his glorious throne with angels around. Him. Verse thirty-two. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the, separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats 
on his lap. Uh, few, few things here. Um, he's separating the two And he's using shepherding as an example. Uh, and I want to say some things because uh, we can read this and we can say, well, God keeps goats. Goats are evil. They represent evil. I uh, can't be in the presence of goats. So if it has a goat, it's an evil symbol. Um, none of that's true. None of that's true. Israel, this was, was common practice that when they herded their people, it was one herd. The sheep and the goats were in the same herd. And I'm going to show you uh, this in Genesis chapter 30, verse 32. Um, Jacob is talking to Laban about figuring out his payment, and he says, let me go through all your flocks today and remove from them every speckled or spotted sheep, every dark-colored lamb, and every speckled or spotted goat. That would be my way. So he's saying, let me go through your flock, and he's listing the things that are in the flock. The sheep and goats are in the flock. And then in Ezekiel chapter 34, the Lord says this, as for you, my flock, he's saying, hey, you, my flock, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will judge between one sheep and another and between rams and goats. So it was just common practice. It just indicates that shepherding involved uh, a mixed herd of different kinds uh, of goats and whatnot. Nothing abnormal about that. Nothing like the Israelites knew, like, hey, these goats are the evil ones compared to the sheep, but I'm taking care of them anyway. They were not, by law, unclean. This was a parable. He said, "Hey, we're going to separate the sheep from the pigs." He said, "Hey, there's like you right away from the get-go that the pigs were unclean and, and unapproved by God." Secondly, the dividing into two groups is spoken of in other parables and teachings. It's just used to illustrate uh, common everyday work about separating things. Um, So here's four uh, that I came up with right off the top of my head. In Matthew 7, 24, there's the, uh, the teaching of the different builders, different kinds of builders, wise and foolish builders. In um, Matthew 13, there's the parable of the wheat and the weeds, or the tares, that, hey, it's one field, and in it there's wheat, and in it there's things that aren't wheat, and they're two growing up together. In verse 47 through 50, there's a parable about a net full of fish, all different kinds of fish, and you pull out the desired fish and throw back the undesired fish, separating fish. And then, in, we already referenced Matthew 25 that there were different kinds of virgins or young women. There were foolish ones and there were wise ones. So it's just the idea that there's two groups. It's just separating, like normal everyday life. You separate the wheat from the weed, you separate the fish that you want to eat from the fish you don't want to eat, you separate the why they separate the sheep and the goats? Lots of reasons. Right? It could be uh, when it's time to shear them, when it's time to milk them, whether uh, you don't want the, at night the, the baby sheep running around with the goats because maybe there's an issue with that. There's lots of reasons why they would uh, separately separate the sheep. <coughs> the point is this it's to illustrate that in God's kingdom, at the end of time, there will only be two groups. Let me say it again. It's used to illustrate that at the end times, the whole world is done and passed, and biblical prophecy comes to pass, there will only be two groups that stand before the Lord. And those groups will not be divided by gender, by race, by nationality, by politics, by special interests, by wealth, by class, by education, and by worship and teaching styles, nor denomination. There'll be two groups. Period. Two groups. Really important for us to understand this. We like separation as people. And you say, well, I don't know about that, but yet we do. We do. We love separation. We take pride in our distinction. 
like our identities, our individuality and identities. Um, and it's important for us to recognize as people of God that there's just two groups in God's eyes. Now, we, have our, we can enjoy our interests, we get involved in our area of interest and whatnot, but in the whole broader scheme of things, there's two groups. The remainder of the parable illustrates these two groups for us. Let's look at that. Matthew 25, starting verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. So the group on his right is going to say, God has prepared this reward for you since the beginning of time. Now is the time come to get to enjoy this reward. And here's the criteria, he says. For I was hungry, and he gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and he gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and he invited me in. I needed clothes, and he clothed me. I was sick, and he looked after me. I was in prison, and he came to visit me. And hey, you, you really showed love and compassion to me. Come, enjoy the reward. And then in verse 41 and 43, he says, He'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Be cautious. Really important to notice here, and I think logically a distinction. At this point, God is not pronouncing the curse on the other group. They're already cursed. Depart from me, you who are cursed. And why does that matter? Because curse was pronounced in Genesis in the Garden of Eden. When, when, when uh, Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate and for what they shouldn't have, the curse came on them. And from that point on, all of humanity has a curse. And it's Christ who comes to save us from the curse. Okay? So, so this is important because God is not coming to judge. Um, he, he, when he comes to judge, this is the parable we're talking about. He's coming to judge those who have been freed from the curse and those who are not freed from the curse. He's not coming to then curse people. He's coming to save people who are cursed. You say, well, what's the difference? The difference is God loves everybody and wants everybody to be freed from the curse. But that's Without Christ, the world's cursed already. And I hope you see the theological distinction because oftentimes people wonder, well, well, you serve a God who wants to curse people. No, no, God doesn't want to curse people. We received the curse from our from our parents, and they received it from their parents, and they and they received it from their parents all the way back to Adam and Eve. The curse gets passed down. Christ came to save all who call on Him. I noticed when I was saying, like, for those who are cursed. So, let's keep reading. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. So, he's basically saying, divide the group. Those who actively show love and compassion to the Lord and those who do not. Right? And it's, it's super clear. There's one of the parables in, uh, in Scripture that um, is powerful and not a lot of hidden meanings, pretty straightforward and clear. So, then the question is, well, how did they show love and compassion to the Lord? And he answered that in verse 37 through 40. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? Clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to visit you? The answer is, do I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, 
a lot of famous people on both sides of this. One thing we know for sure, it definitely includes believers. Whether it includes unbelievers or not, it's debatable. Okay? Regardless. He says this, if by showing active love and compassion to those Almost every one of us at some point has made a Read by itself, this can lead us to think this way or to fear, um, fear these things. And this is a primary and perfect example of why we need to look at all of these institutions when we build our own thoughts and theologies about how to respond. We can't just take one standalone teaching and build this whole thought process the way of action. We have to build the whole counsel of God. Specifically, in this case, Jesus is teaching this, but what else So let's just do that briefly. We can spend an entire semester studying it. And we have 15 minutes. So, let's do this. Matthew chapter 7, verse 2. This is the famous... Um, Therefore, 
just said, hey, these things, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Teaching about those who
hoping that somehow this is going to way you know, way out all their bad stuff. Uh, in my in my tenure here as pastor, I've had people come through in and out and through, and I've said, "Hey, is there something I can do to help the church?" No, no, no. I, I need to give back. Why do you need to give back? Well, I've done a lot of bad things in my life, and now I want to do some good things with my life. Although that's honorable, and people now want to do it, what's the motive behind wanting to do it? Because the hope is that if I do more good than I did bad, God will notice me and put me to heaven. That's not it. Where's the internal motivation? These, these folks had no idea they're, they're showing love or compassion or not showing love and compassion was connected to the Lord. And that's important because they weren't trying to earn anything. They were just living out of the natural state. So, it's important because we're not speaking today about salvation by work. If I do enough good things, I'll get into heaven. That's not what the parable is. It's leading us to or So what is all this brought together? It's this. That expression of true love and active compassion is a natural part of genuine Christian faith and salvation. It's natural. It should be natural. If your if your faith in Christ and your and your recognition of your salvation in Him is genuine, that that expression of love and active compassion should be natural. That it just becomes who you are. Now, please don't fall into condemnation. Um, because here's what, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, it's important that we accept Him as both. He's not just the Savior. He didn't just, he's not just sugar dad. He didn't come down and he's just like, here's some salvation for you. See at the end of time. Like, that's, like, paid my penance, did my dues, did whatever. I'm on the in club. Now I, I purchased my fire insurance. So he has to do more. And the difference is when we don't understand this because we're Americans. Um, when someone is a Lord, they have ultimate authority in your life. Tell you what to do, when to do, how to do. And so when we make Christ our Lord. already our Lord, but when we accept the fact that He's our Lord, He comes into our life by the power of the Holy Spirit and changes us to be like Him. He's not coming in to be our Lord because He wants to dominate us or because He has some sort of uh, power-hungry struggles, um, some sort of dominant God who needs our, you know, our worship and our bowing down or any of those kinds of things. Wants to be our Lord because He wants to restore you back to how He originally intended for your life to be. It would be the equivalent of this. I'm a guy who speaks to me. I'm sorry if it doesn't. You'll get the idea. If I bought a brand new muscle car, Whatever, you shed a tear, your muscle car goes 
talk like him. We act like him. And people, when we're around the rest of the world, people are not like us. We're not normal. We're not peculiar people because we dress weird or, or we smell funny or any of those kinds of things. We're peculiar because we're beginning to look like Jesus. And loving and serving others becomes a way of life because it's how Christ Bible in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and find anywhere where Jesus Christ was selfish. You cannot find it. In fact, John 3.16 tells us, for God so loved the world, he sent. And as Jesus came down and he left the position in heaven, he left comfort, he left all this things, he subjected himself to pain, to torture, to all kinds of things.
never doing this again. I hate, I don't want to do this. The alarm goes up in the morning and you're like, ugh, do I have to get out of bed? Right? And then all of a sudden something happens where you're like, the alarm, you're up before the alarm. I love this. I miss my running set. Right? You're like, who are you? What happened to you? Right? Because what happened is your body started, started something that was good for it.
Lord, showing true love and compassion. Not just in a feeling, in a Lord, I thank you this morning that you gave us a roadmap, kind of. You, you told us uh, the criteria, the assessment that you're going to use at the end of time. And Lord, it's such a benefit to us because we can look at that and say, listen, if I have to focus on my preaching skills or my propheticness or my power ministry or showing loving compassion, you care about the loving compassion more than that. That Lord, if if, if I'm being a little selfish or if I have these things ahead of the symptom, I uh, need to correct that. And that, Lord, we can, we can live our lives in such a way that we become like you and that you recognize us as your own. That through our actions and how we live our lives, we prove our faith. Not because I pray that